This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here on the Train News and Absolute Magician Podcast Network. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. How's it going, everyone? Hello, Dan. Hello, first time in a, in a couple weeks here. Yeah. Well, you know, I figured when there was like a little bit of a dead zone and I had things to do at work, but why not take a week off? Yeah, I agree. So you're not pleased at what's going on in the uh, Heat Nets game right now? I would I would not say I'm pleased. No, uh, we're getting manhandled by one LeBron James. Um, things could be going better. I can see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, he's a force of nature. Um, the Clippers look like a force of nature right now. We're going to go on a quick NBA tangent. I know Dan and I are some of the only people on the blog that actually care about the National Basketball Association. But let me tell you, for those who refuse to watch for some god-awful reason, you're really missing out. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The first round was, at that point, started off pretty ridiculous, and it just got better over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, I actually wouldn't be shocked if, uh, I mean, about the Clippers, I wouldn't be shocked at all if we ended up in it with a with a Clippers Trailblazers Western Conference Final, which I think would be a lot of fun. Oh, I would love that. I'd, I mean, tickets are just way too expensive out here, but I've wanted to go to a Clips game. I mean, the first round was really pricey just because it was two California teams. Um, so I'm hoping that I mean, it's the Thunder, so prices aren't going to go down due to, like, lack of demand necessarily. Um, Blazers are my only shot to, like, actually go to a game and not have to give up a firstborn child or something like that. Yes. Do you root for the – oh, no, you're a Knicks fan. But I, I mean, like I'm a Knicks doctor. fan, but – yeah. I'm a Knicks fan, but at the same time, like, everyone kind of chooses a side when it comes to the Clippers and Lakers and – I've always been a Lakers hater, so it's a pretty easy decision for me to, like, casually root for the Clippers when the Knicks aren't around. Yeah, I mean, aside from all the Donald Sterling stuff, they've been a pretty pretty likable team, unless you're, like, one of the people who doesn't like Chris Paul, which seems like kind of an overblown thing. Um, I mean, they're still fun to watch, uh, as are the Warriors, so that was a really great series. Um, and the obviously the OKC series uh, should be good, too. Um Especially if Durant actually gets off the schneid a little bit. He was in game seven, but up until that, he had struggled a, a, a decent amount against uh, the Grizzlies, and they were really kind of handed that series with uh, Zebo going out for game seven. So uh, hopefully it's a it's a well-played one. I mean, that's all I'm really rooting for, because I'm fine with both of those teams. 
I mean, to me, um, like, I I felt that, all things considered, like, the Clippers dealt with a lot of adversity in the first round, not just the off-the-court stuff, but it felt like, you know, it was a pretty heavy-handed whistle in uh, in the fourth quarter of Game 7 against the Warriors, and I was a little confused by that. Well, they pulled through. I mean, not too many teams can, can throw alley-oops in the last two minutes of a Game 7 and only up, like, two. You know, that's what you get with Lob City, I guess. Um, I said after that game, though, I was, well, I like, I like the Thunder. I just think that the Clippers proved in the series against the Warriors that, like, they'll murder anyone down low. I mean, Jordan and Blake are going to be able to abuse um, the Thunder bigs. Um, and that just kind of, I mean, if you shut down them, all you have left is really um, – you know, Westbrook and Durant going off. And to be honest, if, if I'm the Clippers, like, I'm fine with letting Westbrook and, Westbrook and Durant pretty much score at will. Why, why kill Chris Paul's knees if you don't need to? I'm trying to guard Durant. I think let them score what they're going to score. And, I mean, if they're shooting from the floor like they were um, last night's game, then, I mean, they don't really have much of an issue. I mean, this isn't going to be a, a blowout series by any means, but I do think that the Clippers – now, I pointed this out on Twitter, like, right after Game 7. Like, I just think the Clippers are, are a much better put-together team than people give them credit for. And, you know, like, Jordan's um, jump on, on the defensive end of the ball has really, really um, improved his team in a big way. And I think Blake's, um, you know, huge, like, leaps and bounds progression to be a much more efficient player on the, on the floor um, has also helped them. So I, I do see the Clippers... Uh, being able to get past Oklahoma City, and it might, and again, it's not going to be a blowout, but I, I could see them winning in six, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it should, it'll probably go six or seven either way. Um, I do think, I agree, if I was facing OKC, I would just, you know, you're not going to be able to stop Durant. I mean, even even his bad games, he's going to drop 25 on you. Um, I would just focus on him, uh in terms of just making it tough for him and then hope that Westbrook has one of those super inefficient games because they can both go off, but Durant will store 30 on, like, 18 shots and Westbrook will store 30 on, like, 27 shots. And I'll take Westbrook being far less efficient than I will just letting Durant rain on me. So I, I think that's uh, – I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what they do. The, the other the issue with the Clippers is that Chris Paul, I don't know how – well, he can keep up with Westbrook on the defensive end. So, and I don't know if we're going to see like JJ Reddick trying to take that assignment. So, that could be an issue. But uh, Westbrook can also run the uh, run the Thunder out of a game. So, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. And hit the mute button. Oh, <laughs> no problem. I wasn't yeah. sure if we got so, dropped. Nope. Yeah, for, for me, I mean, I, I don't really like either team in the Nets Heat series. Sorry for your team, but I, <laughs> it's hard for me to get totally invested in that. Um, when it comes to the Clippers uh, Thunder series, I just think it's going to live up to the billing. Um, I mean, again, we both said that the Clippers are a fun team to watch. Um, Spurs Blazers just seems like. Um, one of those classic series that even if San Antonio wins, they're going to get tested in a big way. Um, kind of reminds me of those uh, those couple series they had with the Suns um, back in the halfway point of the last decade uh, during Nash's MVP years, where you know the Suns weren't able to necessarily get past, but at the same time, like they, they proved a hell of a lot. And they really um, they really took the Spurs down to the wire. Um, and then I mean the other series, like I'm as a Knicks fan, I'm a pacer hater by birth. So between that and and Roy Hibbert, being able to just kind of troll him, um, you know, in perpetuity now is, is a lot of fun for me. He's, it's just amazing how bad he's been. Like, he's just not sh- – I mean, it's like there's one thing to be a, a, have a bad playoff game. He's just not even a, close to a factor in these games. Like, he's zero points, one rebound. Like, it's ridiculous. And it is kind of funny – um, 
I enjoy that he's a Georgetown guy because that adds a little bit to it. But just the whole Pacers team is such a train wreck now, and the Wizards are actually kind of fun. Um, I can't help but root root for the Wizards here. Even I have no real issue with the Pacers, but it just seems like at this point they don't even deserve it. They've just so so uh, fallen so far into the tank. Um, and then in terms of the other series. I kind of I like to see the Blazers win. I just like rooting for the underdogs. Um, I don't have any real issue with the Spurs, but uh, just watching Lamar Aldridge in that last round was just amazing. As was watching Damian Lillard, obviously with that game winner in Game Seven. They just seem to have a lot of. It's a fun fun club. So I'm actually way more interested in the two West series than I am the East ones, aside from my team playing. Um, obviously, the West has just been so much better this year. But uh, I'm, I think you know, hopefully the next couple weeks are as fun as the last few were and uh we can really continue on here having having a good nba basketball was early in the playoffs is uh is is really a treat yeah i mean we've seen so many years in the past have just been just um you know a really a really you know solid upper crust team that just obliterate especially in the eastern conference just obliterate their opponents in the first round and it's not a lot of fun i mean in this one i think through like the first what was it, like a week and a half, two weeks, and the cap of games came down to like five points or less. I mean, it was just, to me, it, it, it made up for what was a very disappointing NCAA tournament. I know that non-Syracuse fans might feel differently about that, um, but for me it was just not the type of tournament that I necessarily like to see. Um, so I felt that, you know, like that first round of the NBA playoffs really um, helped me kind of get over that um, and then kind of redirect my emotions from the what looks like impending doom for my New York Rangers in the NHL playoffs. Yeah, I can't add much there. <laughs> but now back to Syracuse matters. Um, so, lacrosse tournament. I don't exactly like our draw, but you know we really haven't like discussed it at length yet on the blog or otherwise. So, Dan, you know, what do you think? Having having a potential um, second-round matchup with either the two teams that we've played already, uh, Maryland and Cornell, like, is that is that concerning to you? Does it seem like we kind of got the shaft even though we're a two-seed? Um, it really was kind of unavoidable. I think, I think there's seven or eight teams that are all really good and really bunched up, so we were going to play someone. Um, if you'd rather take your chance with Denver or North Carolina, I mean, that's fine, but I don't know how much easier that would be. I'm hoping Cornell can pull it out. I hate playing Maryland. They're like that team that I just can't stand watch play lacrosse, and they seem to have success against us, so I'd rather avoid them, and Cornell has really been kind of a, a mess the last couple, you know, really the last month. Um, it's not a great draw, but when the, when the tournament's so top-heavy now, uh, you're you're really not going to get like a favorable matchup in the second round, no matter who who it is, because I mean the other options aren't much better. So um, I wish it wasn't Maryland, but is Maryland so much better than uh, Denver, who people have argued about the seeds, or or like I said, North Carolina? You know, maybe, but I, I don't think it was like an egregious thing where we got put with a really awful draw compared to everyone else. So. It just kind of is the nature of, of college lacrosse, especially with, you know, the ACC flooding flooding the tournament with such really strong teams. Uh, you're going to run the risk of running into one of them soon. So, I mean, if we deserve to win the title, we're going to have to beat Maryland either way or a team that's just as good. Fair. It's funny to me looking at the bracket, um, you know, for all the talk that the Big Ten Lacrosse League was going to be able to to be uh, fairly strong right off the bat, um, to see them get uh, get shut out outside of Hopkins um, is kind of uh, entertaining to me, at least. Um, what I do notice with this bracket, though, is I just think that Duke got a really, what potentially is a really easier road. Um, I, you know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago in general on the podcast. I'm not necessarily sold on Denver. Um, I think they could honestly get upset by North Carolina. Um, I, I think think Drexel could even pull an upset on Penn. I mean, you could be looking at an unranked team getting themselves, uh, you know, to the Final Four without much without much of a hassle. 
um, in that top part of the bracket. And, you know, that, that kind of, you know, leaves things wide open for a Duke or a Virginia or a Hopkins to just kind of walk through. Well, I feel like with us, you know, I, I just – it's a bummer to see Loyola there, but, I mean, that was unavoidable, like you said. I mean, to see, like – to know that we're definitely playing, or almost definitely playing, Loyola, Notre Dame, Maryland, or Cornell, like, I don't know. It just definitely worries me a bit. Because I do think that, that all four of those teams have have an ability to beat Syracuse um, if, if the wrong team shows up, unfortunately. Yeah, especially after watching Notre Dame do what they did uh, down the stretch in our ACC championship. I have, admittedly, I haven't seen much of Loyola, although I'm sure they're very good, uh, as they have been the last couple of years. But, I mean, again, it's going to be – but, of course, they play Albany in the first game, and Albany is, no, is not a great team, but they can be a great team on any given day. So I think it's going to be a fun tournament. There just seems to be a lot of legitimate talent out there. Even even that Bryant-Siena game that uh, is the plan for our – you know, that we'll face the winner of that game in the first round or – whatever they call it, to the standard of play, they probably call it the second round, technically. Um, that's, uh, I mean, that's even a fun game between two kind of contrasting teams. Uh, the only one that doesn't really seem to be all that intriguing is Air Force Richmond. Um, but every other team at least has something going for it, I think, which which makes it a fun tournament. Like, I could see pretty much anything happening in that first round between, uh, except for probably Duke losing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not really big on Air Force and Richmond. I mean, Richmond got Richmond did a very nice job in their first season at the D1 level, but I think a lot of that was just because of how uh, how kind of green all the programs are in the Atlantic Sun. And I think that's, I mean, it's good for them though that they're able to to really jump right in um, and see that sort of success, and that it bodes well um, for a lot of programs in the South region where, you know, the game's still growing, but they could potentially, you know, be an upstart program and really, you know, jump right in, especially, like, some of the private schools. Um, and to be honest, like, if you want to extrapolate that out, like, a lot of the SEC schools that have already seen, like, Florida has a lot of success on the women's game. And you see a school like Richmond's able to jump right in. Um, I, I would think Florida would be able to control uh, that southern market pretty uh, quickly if they were to start a team. What I do worry about, though, is that, you know, with this play-in game, with the play-in first round, I guess, is that it has kind of established a really strict um, hierarchy in terms of, you know, the haves and the have-nots. And, I mean, this is what, like, the, the basketball tournament prevented when they had, you know, not just the 16 versus 16 play-in games, but also, um, like, the 12 and, like, 11 or 13 seed, whichever they decide, um, play-in games instead because it doesn't just penalize the uh, the smaller guys uh, from, you know, just not being in a, in a big conference. So I am curious to see, like, how this evolves uh, over time to see, you know, like, if this is just the first part of, like, we'll have a couple years of this and then we'll get a more expanded tournament. Um, yeah, obviously, like, every year Syracuse, so <laughs> I, I can only benefit from, you know, from a smaller tournament, uh, really. At the same time, like it's 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 fun to see a tournament that has a lot of possibilities, has some upset potential. I'm mean, actually awards, you know, some upstart programs, like I said, like Richmond, and I mean even CNN and Bryant to a point, and, and lets them kind of you know get a taste of some tournament success, get some recruiting um, success under their belt, and then really start to build their programs up. I wouldn't be terribly shocked if we see them add another couple games in that first play-in round. Um, I just think there's enough teams at this point where, you know, we're, we're making we're having legitimate arguments on who can make that final game, and I think we're probably at a point where it's worth getting a couple more teams in there. But, um, you know, I hope they take expansion in terms of the tournament um, at a good pace where it doesn't outdo the expansion of the, the sport itself. Uh, we don't need the sport getting flooded. We don't need a 64-team tournament, obviously, but... I wouldn't mind seeing a couple more teams dead in just to spice it up a little bit. But for now, I think I think the field this year is pretty good. Um, and it would be nice to see, you know, we'll see what Denver continues to do. Obviously, I think they've beaten UNC uh, the last two years, right, in the tournament? 
Uh, yeah, I believe so, actually. So that's definitely, I mean, only a certain amount of familiarity, but definitely a, a game with some history to it. Which is something, I mean, like I said, I, I just think there's a lot of interesting storylines here. Um, I mean, Albany, you know, Loyola elevated themselves to a, to a kind of, like, upper echelon of college lacrosse. I think Albany's trying to do that. So that's, that, that's a fun storyline. Um, in Maryland and Cornell are, you know, both blue bloods. Us, the Penn Drexel game, you know, while the lacrosse teams aren't necessarily rivals, like, they do share a city. Denver, UNC have history. Virginia and Hopkins are rivals. You know, you could see either Duke Hopkins or Duke Virginia in the second round, in the quarterfinals, and that's, like, another awesome matchup. So there's definitely, like, a lot of fun storylines, and I feel like a lot more than normal, and whether that's because of ACC expansion or because of, you know, how the tournament was set up this year, um, you know, remains to be seen. But I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's... Uh... It's always fun to see a Virginia Hopkins matchup as an eight versus an unseeded. That that just that tickles me a little bit. Hop, when was the last time Hopkins had like a really great seed? I feel like it's been four or five years. Was it was it when we beat them in the in the finals? Maybe I I don't know. I don't really care to look it up right now, but it just seems like they've been kind of bubbling under for so long now. And it'll be interesting to see what they do with the. I mean, it's not like the Big Ten's going to be this giant league, but it'll. It's that's one of the. I mean, obviously it's lacrosse, so people don't talk about it as much in terms of like the grand theme of of uh, of uh, conference realignment. But it almost would have made more sense for them to join the ACC. It just seems like there was almost some resentment there because it would have been kind of a natural fit for them to replace Maryland and have the ACC stick around at six until someone else joins up, but I guess they wanted to, they really were into that, uh, what is it, the uh, the CIC that the Big Ten has? Maybe that was the real drawing point here. I mean, Them I and guess. University the thing is, fast rivals. Like, I mean, we talked about it, like, when all the conference expansion crap was at, like, full bore, but, you know, there isn't, there isn't a huge advantage to the the academic consortium when you look at, like, the Big Ten has done a better job of marketing theirs and positioning theirs as an advantage. You know, when in reality, like, every other conference, like, SEC, ACC, like, they all have them. They just don't, like, trot them out like this, you know, like, prized horse. It's like, oh, look what we, like, you know, just look what we have, like, nonsense. Like, everybody has it. And that's what I remember, like, back when the Internet was, you know, just a complete flame war between fan bases during, like, the height of expansion. It was one of the first things I was telling everyone. Like, every single conference has this. Like, if you're using that academic consortium as your, like, reasoning for why a, a school is going somewhere. Like, that and the, it's not like the Big Ten that great academically. <laughs> like, they have a bunch of good schools, but the ACC is better. I mean, to, at least top to bottom, I'd say the ACC is just as good. They may maybe have some weaker ones at the bottom with Louisville and Florida State, but, like, the Big Ten, after Northwestern and Michigan – um, isn't all that great academically. I mean, Wisconsin's a good school. Or they have a lot of really good schools, but it's not like they're they're just a bunch of like, you know, public ivies out there. Even though that's probably what they say, um, they're all like solid universities, but they act like they're just this grouping of like the elites of the elite. When really it's like, okay, you have Indiana. That's that's fine. <laughs> It's not really. You're just really big. You're just really big schools with really big endowments because you're the largest, you know, state option, like in in name your Midwest state, and like that's fine. Like, I think the only place where the ACC lag a little bit is the fact that we have we have a bit of a um, deeper bottom. So I think you're looking at you know. Uh, purely on, like, U.S. News and World Report rankings, which really don't mean much. Um, you know, Louisville, NC State, uh, Florida State, Virginia Tech, which Virginia Tech's climbed a lot. Clemson's climbed a lot. And if you look at Louisville 10 years ago, like, if you're looking at just the run numbers this year, yeah, Louisville doesn't look that great. But if you project out, like, Louisville's going to be a top 50 institution, like, by the end of this decade. I mean, they've had more growth than any other university in the country. Like, they are they are obviously a rising star in athletics and academics, and to see 
for us to be able to grab them, um, I think was I said when it happened, like was a great growth win um, for the conference. And you know what, like we'll see what happens with NC State um, and Florida State in particular in terms of academics. But but overall, I mean, like the only place where um, the Big Ten really gets us is just that the their bottom is a little bit higher than ours at the moment. Yeah. And and the Louisville thing is a good point because I think there was actually like a projected promise of like where they'll be because I know I think I think the, the the what what we were what was told on the internet was that the ACC didn't want to take a school that was below where NC State and Florida State are and they're usually hovering around that 100 mark which is you know not bad if you're one of the 100 best schools in the country um, and Louisville isn't there but they've been on such a fast climb. Um, and it's a huge school. It was kind of a recruiting, uh, not a recruiter, a commuter school for a while, um, and I think it's kind of losing that reputation. So it's just one of those things where it's, it's you know, kind of on the fast track, um, climbing those rankings for whatever those mean. Uh, but it was definitely nice to see, I mean, this is obviously old news now, but it was nice to see the conference kind of look outside of the ball a little bit. Just UConn would have been just such an easier uh, just thing to slot in there because there's so much like a lot of the other ACC schools in terms of academics. Um, but Louisville, I just think, has so much more upside. And even if they're never the academic school that UConn is, like I don't think they'll be so much far so far behind where people will really even care. I don't think they care now. So I don't know. It's it's uh, it's always interesting to see like the other uh, <laughs> like things that come into account here when we're talking about the conferences, but. Ultimately, football is so much far ahead of everything else that, you know, they like to tout the academics and everything, but ultimately when you have a program that was floating out there that was the most profitable athletic department in the country and very successful in the two major sports, um, it was really a no-brainer. I completely agree. And to be honest, I really hope that we see um, lacrosse in their future. But who knows if, uh, who knows if that's actually going to happen. I know we had this conversation kind of last time we was on too, but I, I don't see I don't see any reason why Louisville. I mean, other than I mean, like you know, annual bludgeoning they're going to be dealing with for the first few years. Uh, I don't really see a reason why they wouldn't want to come up. Oh, and we lost Dan. Um, so in the meantime, while we wait for Dan to join back in. Um, yeah, I, I think if you're looking at, you know, uh, schools that could potentially make that leap, um, I think you're looking at specifically in the ACC, which does need um, a sixth member starting, uh, you know, next season when Maryland leaves to get back to an auto bid. Uh, now, of course, those five programs are going to be fine, um, but if the tournament doesn't expand rapidly, um, you are kind of looking at, you know, a shrinking a shrinking pool with a lot more auto bid um, than at large is, and and that could potentially hurt, you know, every school in the ACC down the road if we don't have an auto bid locked up. So what needs to happen, or not needs, would be nice to happen um, going forward is, you know, a school like Louisville, like, like I said, can can I think capitalize quickly on on Midwest recruits the way Notre Dame has and the way we've seen big Marquette's grown a lot. Um, Ohio State and Penn State have both, I think, rapidly elevated their programs. Michigan is getting there, I guess. Um, Florida State, just like I mentioned with Florida um, earlier, you know, has a real opportunity here uh, to grow their program, well, to grow a program uh, kind of out of nothing and really uh, tap into a ton of recruits uh, down there. Odd, like, you know, Jacksonville, who has a program down there, doesn't have a huge, huge following um, and doesn't really like breaking a ton of recruits, but I think um, that they'd be able to to really grab the Florida or Florida State, a, a ton of recruits and really control the state of, of Florida. Dan Beck. Yeah, sorry about that. The phone I was using decided to just die on me. That's fun. Well, no worries. I was just killing some time with some... Uh, ACC lacrosse expansion talk. Always fun. Uh, hopefully they figure yeah. it out soon. 
not having the uh, official conference thing would kind of suck for a while. Yeah, I was I was just making that point to myself, basically, on the air, <laughs> that, uh, you know, if we have a shrinking at large pool, we're going to see um, some issues for the ACC. If, you have, if you're looking at five, you know, at large bids and, and not no auto bids, while more schools come in, more conferences get auto bids, like, we lose ours next year, but the Big Ten gains one. So there goes another, you know, so, you know, there's no gain from this year's at large pool, you have to figure at some point, like, some West Coast school is gonna, gonna show up, or, or some, you know, SEC school is gonna show up. So I think we, what we need to do from the ACC standpoint is to push, you know, either Clemson or Georgia Tech, Florida State or Louisville to, to come up, um, and, and, you know, I mean, control the area. Like, Georgia Tech is a golden opportunity down there, Clemson does too. And then, like I said, Florida State definitely does um, to, to hold down a huge state in Florida. Like one of them just needs to come up, and yeah, you're going to be a sacrificial lamb for a while, but um, you know, eventually, you're going to help grow the culture on the high school level in your state, and that's only going to help the game, and it's going to help the rest of the ACC programs kind of hold on to that auto bid. That, or I mean, you even have programs like NC State and BC that have had programs before and they haven't worked out well but you know times have changed and the sport is obviously bigger and more uh it seems like more it's more open to break into now so maybe one of those two tries to get into things yeah i mean i think the the shortest ramp to getting back into the game is bc that 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 goes without question because i mean massachusetts is a hotbed but yet like, the overall state of college lacrosse in Massachusetts is mostly pretty weak. I feel like D.C. could come right in and, and scoop up a lot of recruits um, that have been heading to Harvard and heading to, to UMass for programs that have kind of floundered a little bit. Yeah, and having, if assuming they were in the ACC right off the bat, they might struggle for a while, but having that fast track into the Power League as opposed to, like, having to tread water as an independent for a while or playing in the ECAC or whatever just seems like it would be a major recruiting advantage where they can say, hey, you can get, you get to be part of the first ACC team at BC and, you know, you're, you can build that legacy as opposed to, like, just joining up a, a random program, like a Mercer that, you know, while it's unique for its state, um, it's, you know, they're playing other schools that are, small names and, you know, it's uncertain how far they're going to get from year to year, where BC would have a shot at taking on five of the best schools every year. Yeah, I mean, case in point, like a Marquette, like they've actually made a bit of a jump this past season in the Big East um, and where, like, they were kind of, like, comically bad at the beginning, but so were a lot of these new programs. Um, I think they've really made a jump in a Syracuse-less Big East across league. So I think, you know, I think they can be the they can be the poster child for what can go right while Michigan can kind of be the poster child for what can go wrong. Um if you if if you don't join, you know, a well established league that, that already you have history with and rivalries with, um and some real contenders in. So I think that's that's really what a lot of schools I mean, I know like the typical list, you know, Minnesota, Louisville, and some of the others, like, if they're looking at their options, I think they're looking at those two schools as kind of like, this is what can happen right and this is what can happen wrong. Yeah, and it's still too early to tell with, like, a Michigan. I mean, obviously, they were, they probably expected to be a little farther along, especially seeing what Marquette's done in such a short time. But, I mean, they're going to be in the Big Ten, and that'll give them at least a little bit more credibility with, some of those other programs there. And it's not such a difficult league where they can't compete right away, I don't think. So I think it's too early to call that like a failure, but it is interesting that Marquette seems to have ramped things up quicker than I would have thought they would have. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what I mean. Like, Michigan isn't a failure necessarily, but they're definitely, I think, at a disadvantage because they didn't join a well-established league. Like, you know, if they had the Big Ten to jump into when they first got in, 
I, I think you would have seen a much different outcome. So I think, you know, with Marquette, like I said, they've been able to ramp things up. But like Michigan, I mean, Mich- the state of Michigan has a great, great um, history. I mean, Michigan State had had a great program at the D1 level for a while. Um, so, you know, to me, I think um, the Big Ten forming lacrosse league only, only serves to help um, help Michigan, potentially encourage others. Like, who knows, maybe Rutgers even decides to, like, actually field a lacrosse team instead of whatever it is they're doing right now. Being an embarrassment to everyone? Pretty much. It was always it was nice to, to have another another fun Rutgers story today. It never it never really <laughs> gets it never you think it would, but not really. Nope. Rutgers being Rutgers. You guys just can't help yourself. And it was so obvious that they that wasn't a quote misunderstanding or miscommunication, unquote. Like, I get they did they had to do they did what they had to do, but like it was so dumb what came out this morning. Like, this shouldn't have even gone that far. When you realize that you had double booked or whatever happened, just say, hey, Eric, you can speak, no matter what. Don't even tell him. Just say, we also have the governor coming, or the former governor, and you'll speak before him. Like, what, is he going to complain? No. Just don't don't be idiots. <laughs> they couldn't have handled it worse. Well, that's Rutgers' problem. And it's just un- unbelievable that one school... And, like, we made fun of Syracuse for all, like, the little social media hiccups, but Rutgers has had four just major PR snafus that were not, like, a stupid store in Pistataway tweeting something they shouldn't. Like, these were premeditated, um, like, just lack of, of accountability and lack of doing your due diligence. Like, everything... That should go wrong. Has gone wrong four or five times in two years, and it's just amazing. And I'm glad it's that school and not another one. And agree. Not to be that guy, but of course, the communications prowess at Syracuse University, largely due to yes, I knew how school of public communication, and all those new house kids that end up not being able to get jobs in New York, and then going into the communications department at Syracuse has at least prevented those types of things, even if they're not necessarily always on their game. No offense to whoever runs the Twitter feeds. Not always necessarily on their game in terms of what happens on our social media presence. No, and those things are just more, like, annoying and embarrassing than they are actually impacted, like impactful. Right. Um, and the one the other day really had nothing to do with SU. Like, that was really not an SU issue, which I was very glad to see. It was a local, like, you can't prevent a local store from doing something stupid. You have to hope that the players can not get themselves in that position. But even them, like, what is Trellhunt going to say? No, don't take this picture. And, like, it's a weird situation, but I didn't think that was as much a Syracuse problem as some of the other glaring ones have been. But even those, like, they're more just kind of annoying and and stupid and easy to prevent than they are something that we're actually going to get in trouble for. Right, and I, and, you know, I completely agreed with, with Sean and his take about it. The big issue was really just the fact that there had to have been somebody that could have prevented that from happening, including the players. Yeah, I mean, this oh, this one isn't even as bad as, like, the radio promo from last year because that's, like, a radio, a sports radio uh, company that should know at least have a general idea of what can't happen. Uh, this was like a random pet store. So, I don't know. It's, it's just like it didn't really hit the radar with me, um, and I'm usually very sensitive to these things. But I'd rather them not happen at all. So, hopefully we're done. Right. Not to leave that for a second. Fingers crossed. On that note, uh, let me talk some beer. Oh, we can do that. We both had, yeah, we both had uh, we both had two weeks now to drink some interesting stuff. So uh, we jump into that. What have you been uh, enjoying, Dan? Pulling up the untapped. Um, I got the dinosaur here in Stanford uh, last week, so 
I had Dino's uh, ape hanger there, which I do every so often. Um, kind of upset because the bar that's near my house that I'm at a decent amount has finally pulled Saranac Pale Ale off of their taps. Um, sad day for me because that was my go-to for a couple months. Um, but I, in its place, uh, I believe I had um, some Deuce Island, which is also quite good uh, in their IPA, which is, I think, one of the more easily, I mean, at least out here it's easily available, but then it's also super drinkable for an IPA and, and really nice. So I got that a decent amount, and I'll probably be drinking more of that now that the Saranac is gone, um, unless something interesting comes in. Uh, I also had, um, I believe I had already had a Sam Summer, which just seems weird because it's just barely May, but that's already out. There's, you know, the seasons on the beers don't really make all that much sense, but you can pretty much get a Sam. You can probably get like any Sam you want at this point. I'm sure we'll have Oktoberfest by like August. <laughs> Would not doubt that at all. I had a bunch of stuff in the last uh, couple weeks. I won't exhaust everyone with a full list, but uh, I've had I mentioned Swami's IPA before, but it's a really good beer uh, from Pizza Port. The first time I actually asked that I could find it in cans. Uh, not really widely, widely distributed. I also got to enjoy uh, Citraholic from uh, Beechwood Brewing. It's an absolutely uh, delicious, uh, citrusy um, IPA from Beechwood. Tasted kind of like a session, but at the same time, it was like 7% alcohol. So, fantastic beer there. Uh, same thing goes for Hop Tanker from El Segundo Brewing. Um, they just have El Segundo Brewing, just is a, a nice stable of just awesome hoppy beers, um, all of which I'd highly recommend if you're um, around here in LA. Um, and then also got to have some South Swell uh, Double IPA from Surf Brewery up in Ventura. Um, it was highly enjoyable, along with uh, Triple Tunnelary uh, from the brewery which people outside of California may actually be able to get if they're in the... Uh, I think this is just a uh, preservation reserve and a hoarder society beer. So if anyone is a member of one of those societies through the brewery down in Orange County, uh, you got yourself a pretty nice beer. So yeah, I mean, plenty of other things I drank, but I said don't need to go down the full list. Very nice. Yeah, a buddy of mine uh, came up not this past weekend, the weekend before, because uh, my wife is at like a country music festival all weekend, and I'm not a country music fan. So we had a little brewery tour, whole deal, fun weekend. Yeah, uh, on to our second topic, NFL draft. Uh, despite the fact that Roger Goodell ruined the NFL draft by putting it on primetime Thursday night, I think we can still enjoy it. Um, and watch the series players that get selected by NFL teams, which actually might be a few this time. Maybe not as high as they were last year. Um, but I guess let's dive into, you know, some of the players um, that could be selected. I, I think Mackie McPherson, Dan, would you say is probably going highest out of everyone? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I, I do think Mac will find a, a spot, though. I think someone will bring him in um, for the for a tryout and for for camp just because he can possibly develop into a, a backup center and then can also launch snap and usually the launch snappers are only that so he's I think he has an advantage there where he's kind of a dual dual youth type of player which is nice for him um, I think the only guarantee to get drafted at this point is Jay Bromley and I think he'll be a solid mid-round pick when all said and done. Um, but I do think Sproul has a nice chance. I think uh, Jerome has a decent chance. And there's, a, there's a bunch of players that are fighting for that se- those seventh-round spots, and a number of them probably won't end up getting them, but I do think we have a lot of guys who will stick around and hopefully at least make camps and get a shot there. But I think Bromley is definitely the one to – to watch for. He he should have no issue getting drafted to see impressed, I think, during this uh this off season. That's fair. 
I mean, I was yeah, I was projecting Mackey kind of as I could see Mackey going in the seventh. Um, and you're right, like Bromley is probably a much better um, much better bet to go early. I think Jerome could get drafted. We'll see. Um, and then obviously, like we'll see if Sproul can, you know, kind of find his way in. I, I think we do have some intriguing players. Um, I think, you know, Keon Lynn's in there too. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't see anyone from that secondary getting drafted. But, I mean, you only have to watch the highlights of, of potentially one game. Um, I'd point to the Minnesota game, the Northwestern game, any of those really as, as reasons why um, no one, no senior on, or at least anyone who declared for the draft in that secondary should necessarily uh, hear their name called. It doesn't mean that they won't end up in a camp. I think actually a lot of these guys will. But, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily start calling names from that secondary right away. Yeah, I don't know. I think Lynn had a – I mean, he obviously had a raw deal because he got hurt. Um, I actually think Lynn's a pretty good player, but I don't see him getting drafted. It's just a lot to overcome when there's a lot of corners. Uh, so, I don't know. I'd love to see him go, though. I think he'll he'll also be a guy who can, who can make a uh, – who can make a – you know, case for making a team because I think he is talented. Well, I think that's the great part here about, you know, kind of since Maroon came in and now with Schaefer too, is that like we're reestablishing a legacy of, of NFL success. I think a lot of teams see that as, uh, like a lot of NFL teams see that, you know, as, okay, like this is a pipeline of like really just tough guys. They're either, they're either strong linemen or, you know, they're, they're aggressive pass rushers. or I, I think tough is, is the main thing that we're, we're getting across. You know, as I feel Thomas, too, like, we're just portraying a, a player that I think, you know, really kind of stands far, like, head and shoulders above what was there under, uh, under the Robinson years. I mean, we're kind of getting back to that, um, you know, yearly NFL draft success that we saw. Um, under Pasqualone, in particular, just like you know the Harrison and the Freenies and the McNabs of the world. I mean, no, none of those players are in this draft, but I think because of the success of guys like Chandler Jones and, to a point, like Justin Pugh, I think we're going to see you know someone take a flyer on maybe a couple of these guys that that might not have been drafted in previous years. I mean, this is a deep draft, admittedly, so we'll see. But but I think that we are. We have changed the culture closer back to where it was. Yeah, I mean, having back-to-back first-round picks is pretty pretty good no matter who you are. We were only one of, I think, two or three programs to do that in the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, obviously we're not getting, like, four first-round picks, but, you know, there's not a lot of programs that did any. So the fact that Syracuse has put two players who, A, have gone in the first round and, B, have been pretty good I mean, Chandler is one of the better defensive ends in the league. He's not played elite, but he's he's a very impressive player. And then Pugh was probably one of the two best linemen on a bad Giants offensive line last year. He was one of the only offensive line rookies last year that really uh, lived up to what people's expectations were. Um, a lot of the other guys were either injured or, or underperformed. So the fact that we're gaining that reputation for not only putting people into the draft and, and having them go high, but also – they're good once they get there. I think it's it's really important, and I think it's something that uh, the staff's done a nice job of of uh, promoting. I mean, you see it if you follow like Eric White or any of those other guys on on Twitter. I mean, they have stuff about Chandler and uh, Dwight Freeney and all the semi recent players all the time. So it's nice to keep on adding to that legacy. I ever, I've ever remembered. Um, and I'm looking at like you know 
tracing back about 15 years of watching the draft pretty closely. Um, and, and this is this is about as like, I mean, there is absolutely no clue who is getting drafted first overall right now. Um, and, and that's exciting, but at the same time, like, you know, for me on the NFL side, um, as a Giants fan, like, I'm we actually have like a higher pick. So I'm concerned about, you know, just like what's going to happen, where players are going to go, and, you know, who's going to be available and we're there. We don't need a quarterback, though. I wouldn't mind drafting one. Um, but I guess, Dan, who do you think, who do you think is going number one overall? I know there's been at least four or five names thrown around even in the past, like, week. But now that we're just a couple, like, like less than two days out when this podcast airs. I just find it very hard to imagine that someone's not going to take Jadavian Clowney first. I know he had a disappointing first year, or senior, junior year, whatever last year it was for him. He had a disappointing season last year. Um, He was also very understandably playing to not get hurt and sabotage his first-round pick potential, which I don't think is the wrong decision, and I don't think that should be held against him. Um, And he was kind of obviously came off as a little bit disillusioned with college football, which, again, I don't totally blame him for because he knew he was going to be the first overall pick. Um, And it's just natural. Like, for whatever reason, these kids are held up to ridiculous standards, um, and they're supposed to be, like, these transcendent people. And that's just not always going to be the case. And Clowney's never gotten in trouble. He has no legitimate baggage except that he got triple-teamed a lot, so... He didn't always bust his ass every play, which if you're getting triple-teamed a lot and double-teamed a lot, you're not going to because it's annoying. Um, And he didn't destroy a Michigan running back on every play. Uh, And those are really the things that people, like, who saw that one play against Michigan in the bowl game and assumed that's what he always was. But he was just a really productive player with huge upside. He's a defensive end, which is a marquee position that is definitely worth drafting high if you can get it. And bookending him with J.J. Watt would be pretty ridiculous. And the Texans, for whatever reason, apparently Teddy Bridgewater is not going to go in the top 15, even though he's clearly one of the best quarterbacks in college football. So if the Texans play it right and all these other teams are stupid because Teddy had a bad workout as opposed to the fact that he won 30 games in three years, um, he could even slip into the second round or they can go after another quarterback, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo or – Derek Carr, if you're sold on Derek Carr, which I'm not, or obviously the superstar of this draft process, Tom Savage, who, you know, despite being a bad to slightly more than bad quarterback for his entire career, is going to go in the third round now. Um, I think, he might even I think before just, that. Yeah, he might go in the second round. Just, like the fact that Bridgewater and Savage might go in the same round of the NFL draft is all you need to know about what the NFL draft has turned into. And when you give these people two extra weeks to, you know, use this, like, nail file to, to point out every little wrong thing someone's done and then also pull up people who haven't, don't even have half the resumes of others, and it, it just seems like everyone's bored and they just need to find new and interesting angles. And it's even like the NFL teams that are doing it now. Like, they just can't accept what they see in t- on tape. And it's ridiculous. So... I don't know. If I'm the Texans, going back to the original question, I find it very difficult to pass on Clowney because if he turns into, uh, you know, one of the great – if he turns into Reggie White, you're never going to live it down. Um, And obviously you can go and take – you know, you can go after a quarterback there, and that would be fine if they take Manziel. I think that's okay. Um, They could go after Khalil Mack, who is a very good football player but played all of one quality football team last year. Uh, and played really well against them, but I'm not sold on him uh, as being a top pick. You know, top ten, that's fine. But I think Clowney still has by far the most upside, and it's very hard to imagine passing on him when none of the other players are sure things either. So that's the way I would approach it. Unless you really want a quarterback, and quarterbacks always have higher value than other positions, unless you really want to go after uh, Johnny Manziel, um, I think Clowney's just... The, the easiest fit, no one will blame you for taking Jadavian Clowney. Like, you'll never, that'll never be seen as the wrong pitch at the time, even if he doesn't turn into a, a superstar. Yeah, yeah, I agree there. I think we've seen virtually every player jump up and down these draft boards. Um, 
I mean, Clowney's a safe pick at one. Um, nobody picks wide receivers early, like that early. I mean, I think what Keyshawn's one of the only wide receivers to ever go number one. I know Calvin Johnson went number two, but that was after, like, Charles Rogers was a bust, and there were plenty of other busts. But you know what? Like, I think Sammy Watkins is a sure thing. I think Sammy Watkins is a top-five pick. I think uh, the Texans take him just because it's not a real need for them. But if it was another team, I could see him going first. I could see Mike Evans going top ten because he's a freak. Um, I think well, his size. Tremendous. I mean, you have Odell Beckham. You have Brandon Cooks. You have a number of other guys who are going to go second round who could have gone probably first in other drafts. I think receiver, if you need a receiver, this is a good year to have that need because there are a ton of guys that are good. Right. And, I mean, to be honest, like, that's where, like, I know my Giants, and to, to a point, your Packers are a little, like, could really benefit from it, is being able to pick yeah, up the first-round talent and second or third round. If we were to take an Odell Beckham even at 21, um, which I think is what the Packers are pitching, like, I wouldn't be mad, mad about that. We could use an extra guy. We lost, you know, we've lost a couple of receivers the last couple of years. We're losing James Jones. If we have a, a guy fall just because there's a lot of receivers and he's the best player on the board, Thompson's going to take him. I'd be fine with that, or I'd be I'd be fine with taking Allen Robinson in the third round. He's a great, he's a very good receiver, and I think he'll be a productive NFL player. There's just a, a lot of depth in that position. Oh yeah, I mean honestly, like I've talked to a couple people about it, like the Giants. Like I, I think if Evans is on the board, you kind of have to draft him. He's just that type. Like he'd be a perfect complement to to Victor Cruz. In the slot, I, I just I'd really like to see Evans pick. It's not, I mean, offensive line we we need desperate help in. But I think if if those top couple of guys, you know, Robinson, Lewin, if they're all off the board, then I don't mind going with them. If if we pick offensive line, obviously there are a lot of a lot of options. I do like Cooks in the second round, really deep draft. I think there's a lot to be uncovered in it, and, and these extra two weeks really just kind of. I, I think you're letting everyone overthink it. Um, you know, you're right back to the original question. Like, Clowney is is the safest pick you can go with this year. Um, I, I don't understand why people are against Bridgewater. I don't think he's number one overall, but I think I don't understand why you would. I don't know why you would pick him outside of the top three quarterbacks in this draft because I, I think I think you're looking at Bridgewater, Bortles, and, and Manziel in some order. Um, with Derek Carr, it's kind of floating around in there as well. Um, and, and like you said, if if teams are smart, they'll look at what Bridgewater did on the field. Um, and I really do like I like his upside as a serviceable starter. But you know, maybe maybe the problem is like people don't see him ever transforming into that superstar. And you, you look at some other like quarterback heavy drafts. I mean, what was it? Um, 99? No. Is 99 McNabb? Uh, McNabb? I think, yes, I think so. Or was yeah, that, that was him, McNabb, uh, Kelly Smith, 99, 98. 99, because 98 was Peyton. Okay. So, yeah, that, that quarterback-heavy draft, where in reality, like, McNabb's the only one who really worked out. Like, Culpepper had a few years. But for the most part, like everybody else, crashed and burned. So I mean, it, it, it's kind of a gamble. Um, you know, I Bridgewater proved himself. I think over over a two year stretch, was really one of the better quarterbacks in the game. Um, I think Bortles had one very good season um, with a lot of talent around him. I think Manziel continually proved himself to be a high risk, high reward passer. I think A.J. McCarron is a is a very, very capable game manager in, in the second or third round. I think Carr has, has a really big arm, but at the same time um, has struggled in, in some bigger spots against some, some bigger and more physical teams. And I think that, that that's probably the only reservation that, that um, you know, draft evaluators really have against him. You know, that, that typical uh, went-to-a-small-school nonsense. I mean, yeah, Fresno doesn't play. Ohio State and Michigan every week, but very few teams do. So, you know, you really Why can't blame them for that. 
My, my issue with Carr as an NFL quarterback is that I watched a couple of Fresno games, most notably the game against Rutgers, where they was a ridiculous overtime game. And Carr just didn't throw difficult passes very often. Like he was kind of what we'll probably see, we'll probably see from Matthew this year. He threw so many screen passes, and he had a couple really good receivers that he wasn't really his arm wasn't challenged all that much. So I I just I have trouble seeing what his skill set, and he could, you know, be uh, a much better passer in terms of arm strength and have, being able to throw the entire, you know, tree of patterns um, than we know. It could have just been a system thing, but nothing that I saw was like, yeah, this will, this is, this skill set will translate into the NFL. Except that he was really accurate, but he was really accurate on throwing screens and really quick routes. And I don't know that. For whatever reason, I think I think that him being a first round pick is kind of questionable, just because we haven't seen. I, I just seem to tend to value live game action a lot more than I do workouts and other things. I just think that you know, good football players, as long as they don't have just glaring mechanical issues like Tebow did. Like Teddy Bridgewater was a really good quarterback for three years and won a lot of football games and has a really good arm. And it might not be the, like the best arm in the league, but he has a good enough arm where he's going to be able to throw. He throws, you know, 50-yard passes off his back foot, scrambling. Uh, there are multiple gifts of that. Like he he can he can rip it. So it just seems strange to me that people in the NFL seem to value a 30-minute workout one day more than they do, you know, 30 or you know 40 pieces of full game film they have readily available to them. Oh, that completely makes sense. Like I said, honestly, like, I don't really care where Carr gets drafted. I, I think that, I just think that Bridgewater deserves to be drafted before him. Um, but we'll see. Um, I know there was something on TV the other day talking about, you know, Carr suffering from his brother's, you know, like lack of success. That's not really part. fair. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it shouldn't be, and they said that, like, that it wasn't fair. Like, and the main point was that, yeah, you know, like, Carr was a bit of a sidearm thrower. Like, D- David Carr was a bit of a sidearm thrower. Derek's overhand, like, above-the-head thrower. So, I mean, it's this inevitably happens, like, with everyone in, in any league that, that, you know, lineage just kind of can sometimes win out over common sense. Um so I, I'm definitely curious uh, to see what happens. I know I'm going to be uh, going to be watching along with everyone else, I'm hoping. Well, we're not going to see anyone go on Thursday night, but but that said, there's there's plenty of time for for Syracuse players to get drafted. Yeah, and I you know hopefully hopefully a Sproul or a, or a Jerome Smith will will get their names called. But if not, I mean the di- the the difference between going in the seventh round and getting, uh, being a free agent isn't all that great. It's, it's more, I think, just nice to know that you were thought of well enough to get picked on the on the big stage. But I think even if they don't, they'll have a chance to craft out a career. And then Bromley, I, I think, will definitely get picked. And probably, you know, as early as maybe the fourth round, he just, I mean, he put up some really awesome numbers. And his, his play on the field last year proved that he can – be a, a serviceable NFL player. I think he was a was a really great defensive tackle all year and didn't get nearly nearly the credit nationally that he deserved. So hopefully he'll he gets uh, called sooner or later and gets put in a good position. But it's nice because so many teams need so many defensive tackles that if you can play that position well, like you'll find a spot. Right. I mean, if you watch just a little bit of film from last year, you'll see that I mean Bromley was obviously the best player on that front four. Um, for SU, and to see him be able to thrive despite that fact, despite that fact that it was pretty much out there from the beginning that that, that he was, um, you know, that good, I, I think speaks a lot of volumes to his success in the NFL, or at least assumed success in the NFL. Yeah, I think maybe the Aaron Donald stuff, which obviously Donald was incredible, um, might actually help him because they're kind of similar. Bromley's a little bit bigger than Donald, but not, you know, so much. But he also had similar production, and it's the same league. Um, not quite as much as Donald did, but he only had, what, two fewer sacks? They both had double digits from inside from the uh, interior defensive line, which is crazy. And then 
Bromley isn't isn't you know doesn't have the crazy like four sits forty times, but he's not that far off. I think he's around like a four eight four nine. So, I mean, if people are are willing to look at at slightly smaller but athletic, very productive defensive tackles, Bromley is a very similar player to to Aaron Donald, just not quite as prolific. Agree there. I guess we'll uh, guess we'll end it on that note. You know, we've been here for a little over an hour. Uh, as always, it's been fun, Dan. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully this time next week we'll know where all these guys are and see how they fit in. Indeed, we'll probably I know we'll we'll, we'll chat offline about doing a write up and some some projections, but uh. Yeah, for uh, Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here in the Troy News Absolute Magician Podcast Network, I'm John, that was Dan, and uh, go orange in the draft. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion, and once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry, from delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.